I'm with Bob Olfin, K4UEE. You're about to embark on a half a million dollar project. Correct. Tonight is uh, Saturday night here in Perth. And on Wednesday morning, we begin a nine-day sail west to Amsterdam Island. And the budget's about 450000 Now, you're the CFO in this adventure. This is not a project that started yesterday, right? No, the idea of going to uh, Amsterdam Island and activating it probably uh, started about two years ago. Um, the island has not been radioactive, so to speak. Uh, hadn't been a ham radio operation for 15 years. So it has basically worked its way up to number six uh, on the DXCC most wanted list. And that's basically where we spend our effort uh, trying to activate those rarest of the rare. And um, so I, I would say that the idea started just at two years ago and is finally coming to fruition. So how do you go about doing that? I mean, the idea is easy enough. You know, you're sitting around the table, you're, you're having a, a few sherbets, and, you know, the conversation happens. And, you know, somebody says, hey, why don't we go to Amsterdam Island? You know, that bit I get. What happens after that? A lot. Uh, these uh, DXCC entities that are in the top ten are there for a reason. Um, either they are uninhabited and really, really hard to get to travel-wise. Or there's a political situation that uh, prevents licensing. Uh, in the case of Amsterdam, uh, there's a small uh, group of about 20 meteorologists and biologists and scientists that are stationed there, and they rotate another group in. I think they're there 12 months and then rotate out and others come in. So um, we started with permission, trying to get the permission, and had a little help from some uh, French-speaking folks that we've been on expeditions uh, before with, and uh, to our, frankly, to our surprise, uh, they showed some interest. Um, once you get then the permission, which is, again, usually the big hurdle, then the real work begins, and that's putting together transportation, um, finding operators that can afford a, a pretty good-sized personal contribution to the to the kitty, uh, can take six weeks or seven weeks off from work or away from home, and um, thirdly, are you know good enough operators to operate uh, three-hour shifts for two weeks, um, and then I guess the last part of all of that has to do with the equipment and uh, uh, antennas and radios and amplifiers and all of the other things that are required to put eight stations on the air. The one thing that makes this different and a little bit easier is that we are going to have access to some of the structures, the buildings on Amsterdam. And uh, so we don't have to bring our own tents and so we don't have to bring our own food. We'll be taking our meals uh, with the French folks on the island. And uh, we'll also be doing uh, what we call KP duty, kitchen patrol duty. So they'll be working us into their routines. Uh, that's the trade-off for not having to worry about bringing our infrastructure with us. So from a funding perspective, uh, you, you start off with a, a kick funds that you know each individual member contributes, but that doesn't get you anywhere near uh, the total budget. So what happens after that? 
Well, the, the, the rule of thumb that I use is that the, the operator should be responsible for contributing. The operators in total should contribute about half of the total budget. And that's pretty much the way this one is going to work. Uh, the other half uh, has got to come from the DX community. And um, basically, there's uh, three sources. DX foundations, such as the Northern California DX Foundation, INDEXA, the International DX Association, German DX, um, and other foundations who, who primarily use their funds uh, to support difficult and expensive expeditions. The second source of funds comes from the DX clubs themselves, the local clubs. And uh, we probably have, uh, at this point, uh, 70 or 80 DX clubs who have made a contribution, some as small as $50 and, and others as much as $5,000. And then the third source of income is from the individual DXers themselves. And the truth of the matter is, when it's all said and done, the majority of the money comes from individual DXers who are donating anywhere from 5 to I guess the largest donation we've gotten from an individual is about $4,000, which is amazing. They must be very keen to work you. Um, well, they, I would say that uh, if you were to survey all those people and ask them why they made a contribution, it was that they needed a contact. Um, but uh, we, we do get support from people who say, I, I, I don't need you. I don't need to make a QSO on any bands. Uh, but I, I just want to support the hobby overall. I want to support the sport of DXing overall. And they believe that uh, the team that we've assembled is going to make that happen. When were you first licensed? 1958. So this is, this is my 55th year as an amateur radio operator. Who was responsible for uh, making that happen? Well, um, Going back to the very beginning, when I first uh, got interested in what I call the magic of radio, by the way, it's still magic, even these 55 years later, um, I was a Boy Scout, and uh, one of the merit badges that I wanted to work on was the radio merit badge, and it just so happened that the Scoutmaster was a, a ham. So um, I just remember building a crystal set. Um, winding that wire around a toilet paper roll and getting a little crystal detector and then getting some, at that point, some World War II surplus earphones and throwing a wire out into the tree and using a Coke bottle as an insulator, turning the thing on and able to hear a radio station a great distance of 12 miles away. Um, that just hit me between the eyes. I thought that was very neat. And uh, I was hooked. It took me a while to learn the code and to get licensed. I was licensed at 14, but the, the genesis of all this was at about nine years old, something like that. And a lot of people in my age group uh, got their start because of the Boy Scouts and the introduction that they got to radio and the radio merit badge. What's your most memorable contact in the years that you've uh, held a license? Uh, I would say from my home QTH, it would be on top band. It would be a 160-meter contact, and I think probably the, the most exciting ones was working uh, uh, Burma on top band or 
working into uh, into India and Lockswood sheep. Um, you know, they came out of the noise for 30 or 40 seconds, and I just happened to be there at the right time, and they came back to me and gave me a report, and then they were gone. It's um, quite a thrill. Even now, after all these years, it's a great thrill. Thank you very, very much for your time. My pleasure. That was Bob Elfin, K4UEE. I'm on OVK6FLAB.